Turn with me in your Bibles if you've closed them from uh, Luke 23. We're back in uh, Luke 23, and uh, the message this morning will focus on verses 39 through 43. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. It was just last week that I had the privilege of being able to bring the message at my father-in-law's funeral or memorial service, and the text that was chosen was, uh, the words that I just read, I, I preached on this thief on the cross. Um, it was a passage that immediately came to mind um, for Jennifer the night that she heard that her father had just passed away. Those precious words, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. And uh, what I'm preaching is a, is a much expounded sermon. I preached basically on kind of just a, a, a summary of what I'm going to be preaching on this morning. And so for my children who are here, this is not going to be the same message exactly. (laughs) But um, this, what we have in our text this morning, is the second of our Savior's utterances from the cross. We have these words, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And I want to begin the message this morning by drawing your attention to the events that occasioned these words. As we think about Jesus and his crucifixion, uh, his death on the cross, we sometimes forget that he did not die alone. There were three crosses there on Calvary, where Jesus was crucified between two criminals, and it was to one of these two criminals that Jesus spoke these words of salvation and hope. Have you ever thought about why it is that God had his son, Jesus Christ, crucified with these criminals? Now, in answering this question, you must first understand that it was no accident. It was not a simple coincidence that Jesus was crucified between two thieves. God had sovereignly decreed every aspect, every detail of Christ's crucifixion. Our God, whom we believe has ordained whatsoever comes to pass in the history of the world, was certainly not going to leave the events of the most important day of salvation up to chance. Now, it's true that Pilate gave the orders for execution. But as Acts 4.28 reminds us, man's actions were simply the fulfillment of what God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. And proof of this is the fact that some 700 years earlier, God had spoken through Isaiah in Isaiah 53.12 that his son would be numbered with the transgressors. And when that passage, when that prophetic word was originally spoken, it was even then a hard saying. Could it really be that the Messiah would be numbered with transgressors? It seems unfitting that the Holy One of God would be numbered with the unholy, that the very Son of God would be executed with criminals. It's not what we would expect. And yet it came to pass. 
This is another instance of God's word never failing. This is another instance of God's ways being higher than our ways, which then still leaves us to answer the question, why did God's plan revealed in his word include these two thieves being crucified with Jesus? As part of the answer to that question, I ask the question, was this not part of Christ's voluntary humiliation? Jesus was born in shame, and it's fitting that he would die in shame. At his birth, he was in a stable. At his death, he was with the refuse of humanity. The debasement and shame of dying with criminals was directly related, you understand, to why Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came down from heaven to this earth. Why did he come? Well, he came as a substitute for sinners. He was taking the place that we deserve. And what is it then that we deserve according to what we see on Calvary? Well, Jesus' death among criminals tells us that we deserve to be treated with shame. We deserve to be treated as transgressors, as criminals worthy of death. Furthermore, by God's design, there are a number of other important lessons that we learn from Christ's interaction with these two thieves. We learn something of the sovereignty of God in the salvation of sinners. We learn that salvation does not depend upon a person's circumstances and other human factors. For both of these thieves were equally near Christ. Both of them saw and both of them heard all that Jesus spoke and did during the six hours that he was on the cross. Both were criminals. Both needed Christ, but only one repented of his wickedness and was saved. Which raises the question, what accounts for the difference between these two men in their response to Christ? Ultimately, the difference is God's sovereignty. Ultimately, the difference is God's sovereign grace. Salvation is from beginning to end a work of God's grace. It's God's grace that overcomes the hardness of the human heart, the stubbornness of the human will, and the enmity of our minds against God. You and I, and this thief, and really any sinner, all are willing to receive Christ, salvation from Christ, only by God's grace. This is what is powerfully illustrated by the salvation of the thief on the cross. There is a similar example in the conversion of the Apostle Paul, but if you stop and think about it, the conversion of this thief is even more striking because the Apostle Paul was a man who before his conversion lived a very moral life. According to the standards of his people, he was blameless. After his conversion, his life was a life of dedication to his Savior. He spent himself in service to Christ. Other than Christ himself, there's probably not been any other person who is a better example than the Apostle Paul of how to live the Christian life. And A.W. Pink, by way of contrast, writes about the thief. He says this, but with the saved thief, it was far otherwise. He had no moral life before his conversion and no life of active service after it. Before his conversion, he respected neither the law of God nor the law of man. After his conversion, he died without having opportunity to engage in the service of Christ. And I would emphasize this because there are two things which are regarded by so many as contributing factors to our salvation. It is supposed that we must first fit ourselves by developing a noble character before God will receive us as his sons. 
and that after he has received us, tentatively, we are merely placed on probation, and that unless we now bring forth a certain quality and quantity of good works, we shall fall from grace and be lost. But the dying thief had no good works, either before or after conversion. Hence, we are shut up to the conclusion that if saved at all, he was certainly saved by sovereign grace, end quote. What also leads us to this very same conclusion is that there is nothing in this history that, humanly speaking, can account for this man's trusting in Christ. Sometimes people think that sinners are saved because the right word was said at just the right time in the right place. But consider the situation of this thief. He was, tr- he was turning in faith to Christ when, to all outward appearances, Jesus had lost all power to save himself or others. The thief saw Jesus carrying his cross, saw the nails driven into his hands, saw him dying. And to see Jesus like this was for many, including Jesus' followers, a stumbling block to their faith. And yet this thief looked to this suffering, bleeding, dying man as his God and Savior. Well, what can account for this faith? Humanly speaking, the thief, his response to Jesus makes no sense. Such faith is undoubtedly born by a supernatural operation of the Holy Spirit. What then is one of the main purposes of Christ's death among two thieves? Well, it's to bring to a man, the purpose is to bring a man to salvation in circumstances in which God's sovereign grace and power must be acknowledged. Turning now to the details of this passage, let's consider three points rather quickly, all in reference to this thief, who he was, what he did, and how Jesus responded. So first, who was this man? Well, this thief was a sinner, very much like you and me. There are some who like to tell us that the character of the repenting thief was nobler than that of the other who did not repent. But this idea is contradicted by Matthew's account of the very same event. In Matthew 27, verses 41 through 44, there it says, Likewise likewise the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. And then notice, even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. This tells us that at the beginning of their crucifixion, both thieves were haters and mockers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And think of the sin involved in mocking and reviling the very Son of God, and then to do it right at the very moment that he is in the process of lovingly dying for sinners. Both men revealed great wickedness. But the fact of the matter is that by nature there is the very same depravity within you and me, and unless God changes our minds and hearts, you and I would have the same response to Jesus as those thieves. You may think that you are not as bad as these men, but scripture is clear that none of us can save ourselves. None of us are worthy of God's favor and blessing. The Bible says of mankind in general, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. 
That's Jeremiah 17, 9. The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Romans 8, 7. Of every descendant of Adam except Christ, who was not born in an ordinary way, it is said, it, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. These two thieves represent us in their depravity. These two thieves are no more deserving of hell than you and me. We may think that we are not as bad as them. The fact is, you probably haven't committed the actual crimes that they have, but you are still just as guilty of sin, just as worthy of eternal destruction as far as God's holy law is concerned. For James 2.10 tells us, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. You and I need to see ourselves just as deserving of judgment as those thieves on the cross. You need to admit that there is no ability on your part to make yourself fit for God. You must know that you are spiritually a leper and that only God can heal and cleanse. Have you come at some point in your life to that point of humiliation and desperation where you know that only Christ can save you? Have you gone to Christ for salvation as an utterly helpless sinner? This is what the thief did, the saved thief. There is evidence in these verses that he came to know true repentance and faith. First, he knew the seriousness of his sin. Notice his words to the other thief. He says, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. This repentant thief understands that God is a God of justice who holds sinners accountable. More than that, he acknowledges personally deserving judgment. In his words, he is confessing his sin before God and acknowledging that he deserves death for them. And then second, we see that this thief has a new marvelous knowledge of Jesus Christ. God has opened the eyes of this robber to see that Jesus is not suffering for his own sins. He knows Jesus is innocent. He testifies there at the end of verse 41, but this man has done nothing wrong. He also, in an amazing way, recognizes that Jesus is God, that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah King. For he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's the miraculous work of God's spirit that enables this thief to recognize that Jesus, his companion in death, is more than a dying man. This thief knew that Jesus was a king with a kingdom who would not be defeated in death. These words, remember me, are words of faith in a savior who will live and reign. For how can Jesus remember him unless he will rise again from the dead? These words, remember me, are, are full of meaning. He is pleading for Jesus to pardon him, to save him, to bless him as a member of his kingdom. And these are also appropriate words for us to utter from the heart. Words such as, at my death, Lord, remember me. On judgment day, Lord, remember me. When you gather your people into the glories of your heavenly kingdom, Lord, remember me. Remember me. And what is the Lord's response to this thief? And to all who humbly seek his favor, Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today 
you will be with me in paradise. Now the man's words, remember me when you come into your kingdom, they don't tell us what time frame the thief is thinking about. It may be that his hope of salvation is far in the future on the day of Christ's return and glorification. Even today, we are still awaiting the day when Christ will return and the glories of his kingdom will be displayed publicly. But thankfully, the blessings of Christ's kingdom aren't only for a future day. Jesus promises this thief an immediate fulfillment of his desire. As a believer, the moment you die, you are with Christ. Jesus essentially told the thief, my remembering you is not going to be just on that last day when I come into my kingdom, but I'm going to remember you today. Today, you will be with me in paradise. For Jesus to speak this way to a condemned criminal gives us hope. What a wonderful revelation here we have of Christ's willingness to receive and to bless sinners. This man had nothing to offer Christ before or after his conversion. And since this man was not beyond the reach of grace, then we are to know anyone can be saved. How clear Christ welcomes repentant sinners. As ugly and sin as you are, Christ is willing to draw you into his fellowship as a friend. For notice what is at the heart of the thief's reward to this thief, Jesus did not merely say, today you will be in paradise, but he said, today you will be with me in paradise. Christ's desire is to have fellowship with sinners. His goal is that his sheep will be with him. That's really what heaven is all about. Heaven is not simply being delivered from sorrow and suffering. It is more than being in a beautiful place along with our loved ones. But heaven is about being with Christ. And you have the expectation of being with Jesus in paradise. And this morning, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, remember that Christ invites all repentant sinners to his table. Christ is willing to receive and to bless, to forgive, to save the worst of sinners. All that is needed is that you come humbly like that thief, confessing what you deserve but also looking to Jesus Christ alone to save you, to bring you into the glories of his kingdom. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and his work of salvation and the fact that he was crucified next to these thieves, numbered with the transgressors as part of his humiliation as he bore our sins. Father, what an amazing love has you've revealed to us in your Son. And Father, we thank you for the grace that is revealed to us in this text of saving a man who had no works to offer before or after his salvation. Father, we are reminded that salvation is only of your grace, only on, by the merits of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Father, impress these truths upon us. We pray for those of us who have lost loved ones, who had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that they went immediately to be with Jesus in paradise at their deaths. And Father, we thank you that as we anticipate our own deaths one day, that by faith in you, you will remember us and we will be with you in paradise. We thank you, Father, that 
heaven as much as we have a hard time grasping what it's all about. We thank you that it is described to us as paradise, a place of, of beauty, a place um, where we want to be, a place where there is no more sorrow and suffering and death, but ultimately a place where you are. We thank you, Father, for the fellowship that we have with you through the Lord Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.